A hundred years ago, these names were in American newspapers on many days. Harry Doherty, Jess Smith, Roxy Stenson, Burton Wheeler, and Gaston Means. Today, those names can be found in a new book, Crooked, subtitled The Roaring Twenties Tale of a Corrupt Attorney General, a Crusading Senator, and the Birth of the American Scandal. Nathan Masters is the author, and it's his first book. Masters, for the past seven years, has hosted a television series known as Lost L.A. He works at the University of Southern California Libraries in Los Angeles. Nathan Masters, when did you first think about a book called Crooked? <laughs> that was around 2018. Um, I was poking around a book idea then. Um, I was looking for what you'd call an untold story, you know, something that was a big news event back in the time, but that hadn't been chronicled recently. But I also wanted something that reflected the present day or that spoke to the present day. So uh, it was 2018, I started thinking about corrupt presidential administrations. Um, and I dug into the history of the Harding administration. Um, Harding himself didn't seem like my man. He didn't seem like the character. He he has a, a really crooked reputation, but uh, was generally, I, I feel like he was misunderstood. He was, a, he was a, a, a delegator. He was a detached president, wasn't personally corrupt. However, I came across the story of his sort of political handler, his political mentor, Harry Doherty, and he seemed like he was really interesting. And then when I read that a United States senator started investigating Harry Doherty, who Harding had, had appointed as his attorney general, and as the senator learned of the staggering corruption within the, within the Justice Department, um, the fact that the Justice Department had been turned into a political weapon, and just as the senator got a little too close to the truth, he got indicted on trumped-up charges by the Justice Department. I thought, there's a great story. So of all the characters, and we'll talk about a lot of them, which one besides Doherty got your attention? Well, the most fascinating one to me is the sort of, I'll, I'll put hero in air quotes, but the hero of the book, uh, Burton Wheeler. He was a, a United States senator from Montana. When the story begins in uh, 1923, he was just elected. He was a freshman senator. He grew up on the East Coast, went to law school at the University of Michigan. Uh, but it was really in Montana where he moved right after law school that he came of age in terms of his political career and his, pol his political career and his legal career. You know, it was frontier justice ruled the day in Montana. He, he was a lawyer in Butte, the mining town of Butte. And... Uh, Corruption, it, the, the, the legal system was rife with corruption, the political system too. Um, intimidation and violence often uh, held sway over legal arguments. And he took that background with him to, uh, to Washington. After serving a stint as a federal prosecutor, as the lead federal prosecutor, the U.S. attorney in Montana. How would you describe his politics? So... It's interesting. He's a little bit of a political chameleon. Uh, it, 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 during the book, in the, in the time that the book is said in the 1920s, he is a, a, a strident progressive. He's um, a firm believer in civil liberties, the rights of labor. Um, he might be just about as left as you get in the United States Senate at the time. Uh, the book doesn't really touch on it except for in the epilogue. But later on, I think a lot of your listeners will be aware that that 
Wheeler became something of a cranky conservative. He became known as a thorn in FDR's side. He opposed the New Deal. He uh, he was he led the movement against U.S. intervention in World War II, and many charged him with being a Nazi sympathizer. What was the Ohio Gang? The Ohio Gang was a, a, a sort of syndicate of lawyers and and criminals and politicians that ruled the Ohio state government um, in the in the 19 teens. Harry Doherty um, was sort of at the top of that. And uh, his figurehead was was Warren Harding. When Warren Harding ran for president in 1920 and was elected and, and, and moved to Washington, Harry Doherty moved with them became the attorney general and and much of the Ohio gang moved to Washington too and started to find themselves in positions of influence within the government or outside of the government but operating in the shadows. What had Harry Doherty done before he came to Washington? So Doherty uh he's a fascinating guy. You know, he started out I mean uh, first of all I'll say you know he's probably the the least one of the least qualified attorney generals in history. He, you know, you think of an attorney general as somebody who has risen to the top of the legal profession. Of course, that's not actually the case, right? A lot of presidents appoint political cronies as their attorneys general. Um, Robert Kennedy being appointed by his brother, a, a great example. Most recently, Alberto Gonzalez being appointed by, by George W. Bush. It's not uncommon for somebody without real legal chops to be appointed attorney general. But... Uh, Doherty really had very little legal practice to speak of. He he did start out um, practicing law, but quickly shifted into lobbying. He was a political lobbyist, and you know he still styled himself as a lawyer. But he accepted legal fees, and I'll get I'll put, I'll put that in air quotes legal fees um, in return for influence within the Ohio state government from powerful interests, you know, railroads, etc. Jess Smith, who was Jess Smith? <laughs> Jeff Smith is uh, another fascinating character. Uh, not not as much as known about Jeff Smith as Harry Doherty, but he was he was Harry Doherty's closest confidant. He was, you know, the, the, I, I I sort of speculate in the book. I, I, there's not persuasive evidence, but I'll just say that that the evidence, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that that Jeff Smith and Harry Doherty were lovers. Um, they were. Jess Smith grew up in the same town that Harry Doherty did, Washington Courthouse. They were boyhood, uh, Ohio. That was a, the county seat of Fayette County, Ohio. They were boyhood friends. Um, both of their fathers died young. They, they sort of bonded over that. And Jess, they, they went, their, their paths diverged for a while. Harry Doherty went into politics. Jess Smith took over the family business, which was the town's department store, and actually excelled at running that. It was a, it was a great business person. Um, but then when Harry Doherty began, uh, became involved in Warren Harding's campaign, and, and Doherty was Harding's campaign manager, uh, Jeff Smith uh, turned over the store to, to somebody else and devoted his life to helping Harry Doherty and, and by extension, Warren Harding. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll go right to the, the yeah. punchline on Jeff Smith. Why yes. did he commit suicide? So... He committed suicide. Well, it, it's it's really a sad story that um, at, at the root of it, it's it's betrayal. You know, he to him, Harry Doherty was his life. He was it was his life's purpose was serving Harry Doherty. That's that's how many sources 
that I consulted put it. Um, in fact, I mean, some sources even go so far as to describe it as idolatry. Um, Harry Doherty, so let, let me start over. Um, Jess Smith was involved in a lot of shady dealings in Washington under Harry Doherty. Um, Harry Doherty was a was a smart guy. He was a um, he, he wasn't a practicing lawyer, but he was he was a smart lawyer, and he uh, he knew that he couldn't personally be involved in anything that hinted of corruption within Washington. Although there was a lot of it going on, uh, so it was a lot easier for him, a lot more practical, a lot more prudent for him to have a cutout, and that his cutout was his closest friend, Jess Smith. He could trust him implicitly. He didn't think that Jess Smith would betray him to uh, to anybody else, to any of his enemies. Um, ultimately, Jess Smith started talking a little bit too much. Um, the, there were rumors were just swirling. We were talking about 1923. This is two full years into the Harding administration. Rumors were swirling that Harry Doherty might be implicated in something, that, that there was something rotten going on within the Harding administration. This is just as Teapot Dome, which is sort of a, a, a side story in my book, um, just as Teapot Dome was beginning to be exposed. But there were these rumors that Harry Doherty was involved. And as I describe it in the book, Doherty and Harding got together and essentially decided that Jess Smith was going to be the fall guy. And when Jess Smith learned this, he was just devastated. Uh, his, his, he saw no reason to continue living. And beyond that, he thought that his own death might be helpful. So he... Uh, he, he took out a revolver in, in the room that he shared with the attorney general in a, in a hotel in Washington and shot himself. You remember how old he was when he did this? Uh, not exactly, but he was in his he was in his 50s. Go to Teapot Dome because it comes up all the time over years and books and all that. Where did the name come from? The exact yeah. name Teapot Dome. Right. It's such a colorful name, too. Right? And we probably wouldn't remember that scandal as well if, if it didn't have it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I think my story, the story of the, the Justice Department, isn't better known. It doesn't have a great, a great name. Right. It doesn't have a um, it's, there's no good branding there. But yeah, Teapot Dome was the name of a rock formation in Wyoming that that looked like a, a teapot. Uh, it had a, a handle and a spout and it was a. Um, one of the largest oil reserves within the nation. It was a, a naval oil reserve, a naval petroleum reserve, which means that there was this deep underwater reservoir of petroleum that was being held in case the U.S. entered a war in the future, and that that oil could quickly be be pumped out and put into ships. Um, of course, that is not how the oil was ultimately used. How was it? How was it used? Where's the scandal involved? So the scandal comes in in 1921 when the Harding administration takes office. And despite the fact that previous administrations had looked at Teapot Dome as, as something to conserve for future use, it was a, it was a, national, um, a national asset, uh, the Harding administration looked at it as something that could be privatized, um, that, that could be put to use immediately. They, they weren't firm believers in conservation. Um, that alone wasn't necessarily too controversial that what was controversial where the scandal came in is is how the interior secretary albert fall at the time transferred the, the drilling right or gave the drilling rights to the teapot dome oil field 
to a private oil company without any public bidding. Um, everything was done secretly. In fact, the, the oil contract wasn't revealed until a year after it was executed. So who over the Teapot Dome uh, scandal, who, did anybody go to prison? And I know there are two names that you talk about in your book, Sinclair, which is used to have a lot of Sinclair gas stations in this country. And, Still are. Yeah, and Doheny. Right. Yeah, so those were the two main oil men involved. Um, Harry Sinclair, um, he, was, he was the one who won the rights or who, who bribed his way to the rights to the, the Teapot Dome oil field. Ultimately, it came out that there, was, that there were huge bribes involved in, in persuading Albert Fall to give the rights to Harry Sinclair and Edward Doheny. Uh, as a, as a Los Angeles guy, Edward Doheny is a, is a huge name there still. Um, uh, you know, the main library at, at, at USC is named after his son. Um, he uh, ran a, a company called Pan Pacific Petroleum. Um, his, he won the rights to a, 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 another naval petroleum reserve in California called Elk Hills. Uh, ultimately, <laughs> both of the oil men involved escaped prison. Uh, there were... Uh, there were eventually prosecutions. Uh, the only person to go to prison as a result of those prosecutions was Albert Fall. He's in, in fact, I believe he's the only, or he was at least the first cabinet secretary to go to prison. How much money was involved in this and how many people got a payoff in the government? We're talking about, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars at the time, which is, you know, of course you can probably multiply that by 10 today to get to, to today's uh, currency. Um, and the bribes were, were huge. Uh, Albert Fall, and in fact, it's sort of funny the way the bribes were revealed. Um, Albert Fall, when he took office as interior secretary, was on the verge of bankruptcy. He was a, a rancher in New Mexico, but his ranch was dilapidated. He had a, a rutted dirt road leading to his ranch. The, the fences were falling down. Uh, a couple years later, somebody uh, somebody who had observed these conditions came by again and noticed that oh, there was a, a, a shiny paved road. There was a, a brand new fence lining the ranch. The ranch had its own private power plant. He bought um, Albert Fall had bought all of the all of the land surrounding his ranch. We're talking about you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, which again at the time was a lot of money. Uh, Fall also managed somehow despite you know the the eleven thousand dollars salary of a cabinet secretary to to pay off staggering uh tax debts to to both the state and the federal government andrew john volstead was a congressman from minnesota i can remember all my life hearing about the volstead act and the reason i bring it up is because it was the effect of that was around the time that you're writing what was it and what impact yeah. did it have on the era that you're writing about? Yeah, the Volstead Act is a, is a has a plays a huge role in this story. Uh, the Volstead Act was the legislation to enforce prohibition, right? Which was enacted by constitutional amendment, but the the constitutional amendment didn't really say much. So there there needed to be um, it, it's it effectively said that that the the sale use or manufacture of intoxicating spirits is is prohibited but there needed to be legislation to direct the executive branch as to how to carry out that that amendment um of course it was 
widely scorned uh, almost immediately by um, by this this new uh, cottage industry of bootleggers. Uh, almost immediately, um, either people who had already been involved in in the alcohol business or who um, more recently got involved. We have a great a great character in the book named George Remus who does that. Um, they they find ways to they find loopholes in the law. They find ways to just flout the law flagr- uh, flagrantly. Um, how much <laughs> how much yeah. of the alcohol was stored in government warehouses? And how did and tell us about George Remus, who he was. Yeah, George Remus was a pharmacist turned lawyer turned bootlegger from Cincinnati, Ohio. He uh Remus, uh, right, soon after, so he was a lawyer, he's a practicing lawyer when prohibition went into effect, started representing a lot of bootleggers who, and, and at, in, the, in the process of representing these bootleggers, learned that they were incredibly well off and that they, um, you know, they were making much more money than he ever was as a lawyer. Um, he figured, you know, he was a smart guy. He knew the law. He knew the pharmacy business too. He could find a way around the Volstead Act. And so he came up with this scheme to uh, buy up a bunch of ph- uh, pharmacies, a bunch of pharmacy businesses. He retired from the law um, and s- sold and distributed what was described as medicinal whiskey, which was one of the loopholes that was written into the Volstead Act, right? Because there was an argument that whiskey or, or, or any sort of alcoholic spirit could be uh, used as medication. Um, so he distributed that under the guise of, of a pharmacy um, and made millions of dollars. In fact, he was, he was um, famously suddenly rich. And um, some people th- think that he inspired the character of Jay Gatsby. What happened to him? He was the, he was the target of a, uh, a protracted investigation by one of the few, one of the few Justice Department uh, Assistant Attorneys General who wasn't uh, subject to corruption. She was one of the few upstanding ones. Um, And in fact, one of the first, or I believe the second, uh, women Assistant Attorneys General, uh, Mabel Walker Willebrandt. She she doggedly pursued Remus uh, and put him behind bars for uh, violating the Volstead Act. You know, he found a lot of loopholes, but eventually he got too cocky. As you know, the 1920 era, women got the right to vote, and then you had 13 years of prohibition. Yeah. What did those two things have? What kind of impact did they have on the society? And and along the way, you still have Harry Doherty as the attorney general. And did he take any money from the story you're telling about the prohibition? And and what what impact did it have in the 20 election with women's having a right to vote? Well, the 1920 election, uh, a lot of sources that I consulted said that that the the women's enfranchisement probably tipped the scales in that election. Although the Democrats ran a a terrible campaign in that year, uh, and uh, Warren Harding had a lot going for him in that he was. He had this sunny disposition. He was promising, famously, the return to normalcy um, after years of war and uh, labor strife and pandemic. 
But the Republicans at the time really appealed to the newly enfranchised uh, women voters. And, uh, and, and in fact, the, the, the 19th Amendment also probably inspired Harry Doherty's appointment of Mabel Walker Rulebrand. Um, he, he thought, here's is this brand new constituency. Uh, we, need, we need to do something to appeal to them. Did he take, did Doherty take money in this, in the story that you told? Oh, he did. He did. Uh, I, d- I don't have any direct evidence that he took bootlegger money or, or, or liquor money, but he took uh, he took money related to um, well, it's a complicated story, but but uh, related to assets that were seized during World War II, um, and that uh, he he took bribes to facilitate the return of those assets to their original owners. This is a complicated story, as you know. You you spent several years on it, uh, and it's hard in an hour conversation to, to cover it all. So I guess that's my way of saying if you really are, get interested in it, you better go buy the book because it's, uh, <laughs> it's a, a complicated story, as I said. Tell us, there are two tracks, the Wheeler track and the Doherty track, and the indictments and the hearings and all that. Can you summarize those two tracks and kind of what happened to both men in the course of your story yeah yeah that's a great way to to put it so yeah wheeler comes into office um already pledging to try to get something on harry doherty so the the book actually begins with what what we would probably what what was described at the time as a gross overreach by uh, attorney general doherty he um he persuaded a court in Chicago to issue this the most sweeping injunction in American history against uh, the labor movement that ended a strike and prohibited picketing strikers from from well, from picketing or from making any sort of public comments about the strike. Um, Wheeler, as a as a champion of labor, uh, was really offended by that, and he promised to to do something about it. So after he gets elected to the Senate, he he, he bides his time, but eventually um, finds the, the opportunity to investigate Harry Doherty when Harry Doherty uh, is, is sort of just sitting on his hands as all of these astounding revelations come out related to Teapot Dome. Right? Te- the, uh, uh, there's another set of hearings at the time in the Senate led by Wheeler's friend Thomas Walsh that are revealing the staggering corruption in the Interior Department. Um, around the, those two naval oil reserves, Harry Doherty does nothing. The just, it, it seems like Senator Walsh was doing a favor to the to the uh, Justice Department in exposing this criminal conspiracy, but the Justice Department refused to do anything. It didn't. It didn't assign any prosecutors. It didn't even open the, the Bureau of Investigation, which was the forerunner to the FBI. Didn't even open a case file. Uh, ultimately. Ultimately, of course, President Coolidge gets involved and orders an investigation, overrides his attorney general, which was uh, an almost unprecedented act. And uh, two special prosecutors get involved uh, who operate independently of, of Doherty's influence. But at that time, Wheeler thinks there's there's actually this great political outcry against Harry Doherty for for doing nothing. So this is his opportunity to investigate. So he launches a, a, a Senate investigation. He has a... a a committee impaneled, a committee of five. It's stacked three to two, uh, 
towards the Republicans, which, you know, that, that was the administration that was in power. But at the time, party lines weren't they were a little bit blurred, right? There, there were uh, there were progressive Republicans and there were conservative Democrats, and when the when the committee started operating, it turned out that there was a three to two majority for having an earnest, real investigation of Harry Doherty, and who, they elected. Yeah, <clears throat> who came to the committee hearings that did the most damage to Harry Doherty? The first two witnesses, I would say, uh, the first witness was Jess Smith's. Uh, ex-wife, and that uh, Jess Smith, as you, as you recall, was uh, Harry Doherty's roommate and, and closest friend. Um, she had, over the years, you know, heard heard so many suggestions of over the, the last two years. Had heard so many suggestions of of corruption. Of you know, Jess Smith had been bragging about what he and Harry had been doing together in Washington. And, and by the, the way, her name was Roxy Stenson. Yes, thank you. I, I forgot to mention well, that. No, yes. but the reason I, the name itself, what was she, what was she like, and and what was how long were, was she married to Jess Smith? Yeah, she was married to Jess Smith for a short time, about ten years before the, the, the time the story takes place. Um, the marriage, for obvious reasons, didn't work out, but they stayed really close. In fact, they were they were best friends. Um, she was a she was a, a charming figure. Um, she, uh, when she arrived in the, the Senate hearing room, she made jokes. She, she got the entire audience laughing. She, um, she sobbed when, whenever her, her dead ex-husband was brought up. So she appealed to the emotions of the crowd. She was, um, she was probably the perfect witness for Burton Wheeler. And she recalled all of these times that Jess Smith had been bragging about the deals that, that he and Harry had been making. She didn't have any hard evidence, but there was certainly enough there to convince a lot of people who had previously been skeptical that there was really something rotten within the, the Justice Department. How many days was she on the stand? She was on the stand ultimately, I believe, five or six days. It was really the first couple of days that, that made the biggest impact. What would have what would have been like today if somebody like Roxy Stenson in the television age was to uh, be in front of a committee like this? Yeah, that's a great question. So the everything would have been amplified. Part of the point that I make in my book is that this was really the first moment when colorful characters like Roxy Stinson or another witness, Gaston Means, um, where they could really make an impact and where they where their words would be immediately transmitted across the country. Um, this was, th there was a new style of journalism had emerged that uh, critics re referred to as jazz journalism. Um, there was, you know, radio was just beginning to emerge as a, as a, as a medium, but every day people would tune in to the, to the radio, to the news on the radio and they would hear what had happened in the, in the hearings. Uh, but yeah, everything would have been completely amplified if it had been televised. What impact did Roxy Stenson's testimony have on the on Harry Doherty? He was infuriated. Um, he first of all, he wasn't surprised. There is a there, there's a little side story in the book about how he had um, about how she had essentially tried to blackmail him. She knew that she had something on him. She knew that he was coming under uh, suspicion. She tried to blackmail him. He tried to silence her. Uh, he he wanted her out of the country, but ultimately, when she 
complied with the Seneca uh, subpoena that Wheeler personally delivered in Ohio. He took an overnight train to Ohio just to deliver the Senate subpoena. He was worried that Harry Doherty's uh, operatives would get their hands on, on her first. She complied with the subpoena. Uh, she testified the very next day in, in Washington, and he was infuriated. And he had, even as she had been threatening to blackmail him, he had uh, collected some blackmail himself on Roxy Stinson. And as soon as she testified, he deployed it. Um, he intimated that she had uh, been involved in an affair with a married man. Gaston Means. What, what, yeah. what's, what's his story? <laughs> yeah. So he is probably the most colorful character of all in this book. He was a, uh, a private detective for a while. He was a con artist. Uh, at the time that the book starts... He was uh, on. He was just on his way out of the Bureau of Investigation as a secretly appointed special agent. Uh, he was essentially Harry Doherty or Jess Smith's, I, I should say, um, secret operator. Uh, he was a, a, a very good friend with the director of the Bureau of Investigation, William Burns, who was uh, also a shady character. Uh, he's a member of the Ohio gang, uh, a, a, a longtime friend himself of, of Harry Doherty's. But Gaston Means did he carried out a lot of a, a lot of the dirty tricks on behalf of Doherty and Jess Smith. He ransacked senators' offices whenever a congressman made a snide remark about the attorney general on the floor of the House or of the Senate. Um, often they would find their their office broken into the next day, uh, files missing. Gaston Means carried out a lot of that work. How bad a guy was Harry Doherty? I think he was a, a, a pretty bad guy. He, um, you know, he, he uh, operated the Justice Department as uh, a gangster would. I mean, with, with some limits. I don't think he would ever go so far as murder. Uh, but that's not really paying him a compliment. So what, what was Harry Doherty's reaction to... Burton Wheeler, what did he do about him, the other side of this story? So Doherty was no was no stranger to congressional criticism, right? This had, it had come up many times, and again, he had, um, he or Jess Smith, again, he always maintained plausible deniability. There's no evidence that Harry Doherty was ever really involved in these operations, but whenever a, a member of Congress would criticize him, he'd He'd uh, find some compromising material on this person, and and say, "Hey, you you, you might want to quiet down. Otherwise, you know, these are the consequences." So, you know, he got to work. His agents got to work um, on Burton Wheeler when Wheeler started criticizing him. And in fact, you know, there's there are news reports. It was publicly reported that um, Doherty huddled with his Bureau of Investigation director Billy Burns at the time um, to try to figure out a way to silence Wheeler. Um, so he soon after, in concert with the Republican National Committee, the a, a, an, almost an army of private detectives and, and Bureau of Investigation special agents and Justice Department personnel fanned out across Montana in search of compromising information on Burton Wheeler. Did they find anything? Well, they had a lot of false leads. Uh, Wheeler was... Th there's no evidence that Wheeler was ever um, involved in in anything 
corrupt in Montana, which was probably a surprise to to the people who were looking into it. They, uh, you know, Montana Montana's political system was famously corrupt, but Wheeler was one of the few who who stood uh, you know who stood above that. Uh, ultimately, they they looked into a, a private detective working for the Republican National Committee. Um, which allowed him a little bit more flexibility than you know a Justice Department employee would have. Um, started looking into Wheeler's legal practice because at the time it wasn't uncommon for members of Congress to maintain a legal practice. Uh, the the only rule was that they couldn't really be involved in any cases or controversies affecting the federal government. So they had to they had to limit their activities to state courts. And Wheeler was representing a an oil company, a Montana oil company, that had a lot of litigation in the Montana state courts. Uh, but this private detective found that there that he might have also been involved in setting up a meeting for this oil company with the Interior Department because the oil company was trying to get uh, leasing permits to an oil field in in Montana, and it really wasn't much. But that was that was about all that the. Uh, that the investigators found and they just ran with it. How did they run with it? Well, they, uh, they, they, they took the evidence that they found, which was, you know, real evidence from the, the, from, there were sworn affidavits from employees of the oil company. There were documents from the oil company. They presented this evidence to a grand jury, uh, or actually I should say that a U.S. attorney in Montana who had been, essentially blackmailed by the attorney general, presented the evidence to a grand jury in Montana and presented it in a way, you know, they, they put a spin on it and persuaded the grand jury, which, you know, we've all heard the phrase like a grand, uh, you, you know, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. They indicted, they indicted a sitting senator, which was at the time a very unusual thing. There had been a few senators indicted in the past, but um, it was very unusual. And it was especially astounding that the most prominent critic of the Justice Department, Burton Wheeler, would be indicted at the time by the Justice Department. Was there a trial? There was a trial. And that's the sort of uh, climax of, of the story. Yeah, it, it uh, there were there were actually two trials. There was one, first of all, in the United States Senate. The Senate uh, had to determine whether Wheeler was fit to remain a senator under these, because uh, it was a serious charge. It was a, it was a, I think it was a misdemeanor charge, but it was a federal indictment. Uh, it's unusual to have an indicted person sitting in the Senate. The Senate exonerated him, uh, but they didn't really look into the facts too much. The trial happened about a year later, and uh, during the trial, or at the opening in the opening arguments of the trial, the uh, lead prosecutor promised a surprise witness that would totally change the public's conception of the case. And that surprise witness came in a few days later and told this completely fabricated tale about Burton Wheeler being involved in this conspiracy, um, accepting thousands of dollars to uh, to turn oil cases before the Interior Department in, in favor of his client. Who was, who was the surprise witness? The surprise witness turned out to be somebody who had testified to Wheeler's own committee. And Wheeler had, you know, one of the one of the things I get out in the book is that, you know, Wheeler, and I'm making Wheeler out to sound this to sound like a, a just a completely heroic figure, 
but you know he had faults of his own. He uh, he got a little carried away. He um, wasn't always didn't always hew too closely to the facts. He was uh, infatuated with with the reaction that that his words would make in in print. Um, and so he humiliated this witness, George B. Hayes, before his committee, or he allowed his he allowed another witness to do that. Hayes was uh, you know embarrassed. He pledged revenge, and eventually, when a uh, Department of Justice prosecutor came calling. This witness Hayes found uh, his opportunity for revenge against Wheeler. After the trial, what did the jury decide? Yeah, so there was so, there was some suspense as to what the jury would say. Right, uh, the uh, the Justice Department had proven itself very effective at, at getting its way. It had indicted Wheeler really on on trumped up charges. Um, even though Harry Doherty was no longer in office, he'd resigned. There was a, it was an open question um, whether the jury would would exonerate or would would um, acquit Wheeler. But ultimately, they did. They voted unanimously to acquit Wheeler. And in a, just an amazing scene that again um, you wouldn't believe it if it if it hadn't happened. The very moment that Wheeler learned that he had been acquitted, he also learned that his wife had given birth to their most recent child. Um, thousands of miles away in Washington, D.C. So what was the biggest help to you to put all this together? So I think the biggest help sounds very simple, but it would have, it would have been my timeline. There is, as, as you pointed out, there's a lot going on here. It's very complicated. So I created a very detailed chronological timeline of all of the events. And what's interesting about that, I mean, it, again, it sounds very basic, but when you do that, you see patterns emerge. You see, oh, this thing happened short time after that and that's what i was able to just by doing that i was able to make um you know original discoveries that for instance you know harry doherty how harry doherty had come to recruit this special prosecutor within the justice department to go after burton wheeler which is uh, you know something that i made I, I made this discovery in the national archives but i didn't realize its significance until i put it in the out in the in the timeline what were your other sources uh, I, did you read all 3,000 pages of uh, testimony? You know what? I didn't read all 3,000 pages. I'll be honest. A lot of, a lot of the testimony um, turned out not to be uh, relevant to the, either to my story. Or a lot. He went, you know, Burton Wheeler went to a lot of dead ends. Uh, but uh, I, I read thousands and thousands of pages of, of um, testimony of FBI records. In fact, um, you know, FBI records that I obtained by the Freedom of Information Act turned out to be one of the the, the biggest sources. Uh, there was an extensive file, of course, on Burton Wheeler. Uh, we're talking about um, thousands and thousands of pages, hundreds of serials, uh, a lot of them dead ends, but then a lot of those file, a lot of those, uh, a lot of that file details uh, the Justice Department's surveillance of Wheeler, of, of witnesses during the trial. Um, other primary sources that I consulted were the uh, the Justice Department records at the National Archives, and those were probably just as helpful as the FBI records. Those were the the files that the lawyers kept about the cases, about the prosecution of Wheeler, about uh, responses to requests from the committee that was investigating the Justice Department, and then a, a, another huge suite of sources came from the uh, Library of Congress too, manuscript collections there. So this is your first book, 
And how did you get ready for that? What kind of background did you need in order to <clears throat> write your first book? And what's your full-time job? Yeah, my full-time job, I work at the University of Southern California Libraries. I actually work in a building named after Edward Doheny, one of the oil men who was involved in Teapot Dome. Um, so I work, in a, I work in a university library. I also host a public television show and, and produce a public television show called Lost LA, which explores Los Angeles history through archives. So I have a lot of experience working with archival materials and presenting them in a compelling way to the public, hopefully a compelling way. Um, how did I prepare myself for the book? Well, I just, uh, you know, I had I had a great editor, I had a great agent who, um, you know, the, my, my agent, Samantha Shea, really helped me put together uh, a proposal. I mean, it, it, there there is a, a bit of a learning curve in, in um, for a first-time author, putting together a proposal and then you know, it, it's it's something new, but I um, I had a lot of help. Carrie Napolitano. Yeah. You referenced in the book, and then you get an endorsement from Janet Napolitano. Any relationship? Yes, I believe Janet Napolitano is Carrie Napolitano's aunt. But I, I, I just ask you, how did you get an endorsement for this book from Janet Napolitano? I believe Carrie asked. Uh, so, so. Sam Raim was my was the editor who worked with me on the manuscript, and uh, he left Hachette Books right after I turned in my final draft, uh, which was great timing. And then Carrie Napolitano took over the project, and when she read the book, she thought, "Oh, this would be perfect for my my aunt Janet Napolitano." So she very generously asked her to 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 read it, and apparently Janet Napolitano reads like a book a week or two books a week. So she had time to do it and liked it and gave an endorsement. What, what have you heard from people that have read your book? What are the kind of things they say back to you about, the, you know, your work and what, what intrigued them? Well, I mean, I'm really honored by some of the, the early praise that it's getting. You know, um, I was a huge fan of, of Garrett Graff's Watergate book. I don't know if you read that, but that came out maybe a year or two ago. Um, and I had just uh, read that after I'd finished the manuscript, and I, and I thought, you know, this is these are scandals that are separated in time by fifty years, but there's so much similarity between the two, um, the the absurdities and the uh, the twists. And so I, I wanted to share it with him, and he very um, graciously agreed to read it and 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 liked it. And getting an endorsement from somebody like him um, is is a, a real honor. So we're talking 100 years ago. Yeah. We're talking 1921, 22, 23. We need to, um, I, well, I should ask you this. Wheeler ends up running for vice president and gets a lot of votes with, uh, with his running mate. How did that happen? Yeah, a lot happens in this book, right? And I, 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 try, I try to, I, I, I hope that I succeeded in telling it um, coherently. But yes, yeah, in 1924, um, you know, Wheeler had succeeded in getting Harry Doherty to resign. Um, he put so much public pressure on President Calvin Coolidge, uh, who at the time was running for re-election as president, was in the middle of a of a primary uh, campaign. He was a, he had primary challengers within the Republican Party. This pressure was effective, uh, and Wheeler persuaded Coolidge to fire Doherty. Doherty did go. And Wheeler was triumphant, and that catapulted him to national fame. Again, this was the first time that a political scandal had really captured the entire nation's imagination. 
So Wheeler was all of a sudden a political celebrity. Uh, the Democratic Party wanted him to run for vice president. The, the nominee at the time wanted him to run. Uh, but he, the nominee was a, a conservative Democrat whose politics Wheeler detested. Wheeler actually said, I'm essentially leaving the Democratic Party soon after uh, Bob LaFollette, the progressive Republican and another maverick senator uh, and, and somebody who had become a bit of a, a mentor to Wheeler asked him to be his running mate. We, uh, LaFollette was, was running, he was staging a third party challenge to Coolidge and the, uh, the Democratic nominee Davis. And LaFollette, uh, Wheeler agreed to be his, his running mate. Well, the interesting thing is that they got something like 18% of the vote uh, in that election, which is one of the highest in history. It's true. And they hoped that it would be a lot higher. And there, there was a time when when it seemed like it could be. Some of the polling was, of course, uh, in a very primitive state at the time. But some of the public polling suggested that there could be uh, what, what would amount to a three-way tie or, or there would be a deadlock that would send the election to the House of Representatives. Uh, and the progressives held out hope that either LaFollette would be elected by the House, or I guess LaFollette wouldn't have been elected by the House. They, they held out hope that <laughs> this was almost a pipe dream, but publications like The Nation speculated about it seriously, that Burton Wheeler would become acting president. He would be elected by the Senate to break a deadlock. The The House of Representatives would remain deadlocked to be, become acting president. Let me correct myself. I said 18%, it was only 16%. Uh, Cooley's got still 50, very substantial. Yeah, and Cooley's got fifty-four percent in that election. Uh, yeah. how, go back to the, you, you tell the story about how um, Wheeler was able to push Coolidge to send Harry Doherty back to private life. What's the backstory on that, and how did that happen? And what what year did he do that? We haven't talked much about Harding's death in the middle of all this, to, which made Coolidge president. Yeah, so let's start there. Uh, Harry, uh, sorry, Warren Harding died rather suddenly in uh, the summer of 1923. He was on a very ambitious tour of the western United States. He visited Alaska. He drove a locomotive. He climbed hundreds of steps. He drove, you know, ceremonial spikes in the railroads. Um, and he was in poor health. And he died. He had a, he, he had a very weak heart. Um, he had heart disease that was misdiagnosed by his homeopathic doctor, um, and died in a San Francisco hotel room in uh, in the summer of 1923. And his obscure at the time vice president Calvin Coolidge was suddenly thrust into office. Um, and for Harry Doherty, this was a really harrowing. Uh, turn of events because Doherty, of course, had uh, he had every reason to expect loyalty from Warren Harding, but but Calvin Coolidge owed nothing to him, um, which meant that not only was his grip on his office insecure, but you know who knew what Coolidge would do if he if he learned about what was really happening within the Justice Department and within within his own apartment suite. Why why does everybody give Warren Harding a pass? on all this corruption in his administration? I mean, that's a fair question. Um, and I didn't mean to suggest earlier that I give him a pass. Um, well, but it, as you know, a lot of historians have, and yes. a lot of people that talk about Harding, they say, well, he wasn't crooked, but all these people around him were. So some things that I can say in his favor is that uh, 
he learned of these scandals relatively late. He was he was probably genuinely unaware of what was going on. He cultivated this this sense of we're you know we're this is the 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 good the, the boys club where let's you know we'll take care of everybody. But he didn't really know what was happening. When he did start to learn, he got involved, and he in fact on this road oh no, excuse me on this on this trip through the West. Um, he received apparently disturbing news about what was happening within the Justice Department. And nobody really knows what he resolved to do, but Harry Doherty suddenly became scared, um, took a train out himself to, to meet up with Harding, uh, met with him privately a couple times. I, I think suggestions that Harding was about to act maybe maybe absolve him a little bit. What um, before we end this, I, a couple of questions about Wheeler didn't he was 92 when he died. Yes. What did he do after 1947 when he left the Senate? He worked as he actually remained in Washington, D.C. and worked as a lawyer. Was he involved in lobbying? I believe he, I believe he was. He also represented uh, occasionally and somewhat ironically, represented uh, witnesses who, who appeared before uh, congressional committees. And what did Harry Doherty do after he left the attorney general's spot? Yeah, he never held public office again. That's um, one of the points I, I really make at the end of the book is that Doherty never spent a day in jail. He was indicted. Uh, the, his successor, Harlan Fisk Stone, to his credit, pursued Doherty. Um, Doherty was indicted, tried twice. Uh, both times the, the jury, uh, it ended in a hung jury. There, there were mistrials. So he never spent a day in jail. Uh, but he was widely discredited. Um, he was, you know, the, the, the nation knew that he was a crook. He um, spent the rest of his life trying to restore his legacy. He wrote a, a very self-serving memoir, um, but really lived out his, his last few days in obscurity. Did Roxy Stanton write a book? I wish she had. That would have been uh, an amazing source. There are so many, there's so many uh, characters I wish had written books. Thankfully, Doherty and Wheeler both did. Um, and of course, I had to discount some of the, some of the claims they made. No, Roxy Stinson, Roxy Stinson, soon after the, these hearings, soon after she was involved in the, the Wheeler-Doherty hearings, she said she'd had enough of it. She uh, remarried and lived a, a very quiet life uh, for several decades. And I gather, I, I checked that she lived to be 83 years old and died in 1973. So she lived a long time after all this. That's right. And she was largely forgotten until her death. And then all of a sudden, these obituaries came out explaining her role in um, in exposing one of the, the greatest corruption scandals in American history. And I'm sure even some of her neighbors were shocked to learn of her role in that. Now, after your experience of writing this first book, did you find characters in here you wanted to write another book about? I mean, I've thought about it. Uh, Gaston Means is fascinating. Um, but again, it's always hard to figure out what the truth is with him. He's a serial liar, uh, fabulous. Um, Burton Wheeler, again, there, there's a story to be told about, about his sort of political evolution. Um, 
how how he changed from uh, what well, you you'd almost say from a from a hero to a villain in in um, in I guess our our public memory, um, and that he was really squarely on the wrong side of of the question of intervention in World War II. Uh, there's a lot there, and and I, I sort of explained that the origins of that transformation are in the book, are are in the story. You know, he uh, he was really interested in publicity and courting publicity and um but i i'm not i'm not sure if that's if that's a book i'm going to write so billy burns you mentioned earlier but right behind billy burns who ran what was the office that turned into the fbi j edgar hoover what role did both of those men play back in the 20s in this book yeah so William Burns, Billy Burns, was, uh, again, he was a boyhood friend or a longtime friend of Harry Doherty, one of his most loyal lieutenants, um, allowed Doherty to transform the Bureau of Investigation into a political weapon against Doherty's enemies. His deputy at the time was uh, yeah, a man who, who by then went by the name John Edgar Hoover who was already somewhat famous for uh, leading the the Palmer raids against leftist radicals in in the year in the years after World War one uh, when Burns was forced to resign by Harry's by Harry Doherty's successor because of his role in all of these scandals uh, Hoover became the acting director and was sort of put on a, 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 a trial run he was put on a, you know a probationary period to see how he would perform as as acting director. One of the great ironies is that, you know, well, six months later, um, the Attorney General Harlan Fisk, Harlan Fisk Stone made Hoover's appointment permanent. Um, didn't know really how permanent that would be. Yeah. Um, but one of the great ironies of this story is that, you know, Wheeler's crusade against the Department of Justice and, and the Bureau as a political weapon resulted in J. Edgar Hoover's appointment as director. And of course, Hoover would come to use the the bureau for political means or the, the fbi for political means for decades to come how much were the people in the 19 early 1920s in this country aware of all this that you're writing about they were very aware this was you know at the time it, this was the the, the the roaring 20s again uh journalism had just now had just then found a way to uh, send stories across the country. The, the entire country would, uh, they would huddle around their radios at night or they would, uh, you know, in the morning they'd, they'd gossip about the latest news either in this scandal or in, uh, you know, the, the, the murder or the, the manslaughter trial of uh, actor Fatty Arbuckle, for instance, or, or they'd all talk about the boxing match between Carpentier and, and Dempsey or th there were there were these stories that captivated captivated the entire nation, and I'm sure not everybody was aware. But for the first time in American history, really a, a large percentage of the of the American public was following what was happening in Washington. At least when men like Burton Wheeler could make it into a compelling story. As we wrap it up, what about you? Where are you from originally? I'm from Orange County, California. Where'd you go to college? University of California, Irvine. And then what what drew you to the libraries of uh, University of Southern California? 
Well, I've always, I mean, I, I've always just loved books, loved libraries, and um, the libraries gave me a, a way to uh, explore my interest in, in history through the, the archives, through public programming, through work that I do like, uh, like Lost LA, the television series. Um, it's been a great fit. When is Lost LA on television in, in uh, Los Angeles? Yeah, it's on, well, right now we're on hiatus, but we, we have another season coming out in uh, this fall. How long are the programs? They're half-hour episodes. Uh, we have our most most of our seasons are about six episodes, and we we try to come out, uh, you know, about every year with a new season. And if people watch it out there, which I assume they do, uh, yeah. what are they getting on a week-to-week basis? Yeah, each week we explore a uh, just a different theme or a different story from Los Angeles history. We've told the story of. The Japanese incarceration during World War II. We've, uh, you know, told the story of a doll company that made uh, that made ethnically correct, correct black dolls um, in Watts in the in the aftermath of the Watts riots. Um, we all sorts of stories. So, whose idea was it to name this book Crooked? That was mine. I'm, I'm happy to say, proud to say, that was on the original proposal. Our guest has been Nathan Masters. The book, as we just said, is Crooked. The subtitle, The Roaring Twenties, Tale of a Corrupt Attorney General, a Crusading Senator, and the Birth of the American Political Scandal. Thank you very much, sir, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.